growing up, right, I, I grew up in a poor community in Massachusetts. I'm white, I'm gay. And I felt like everybody knew who I was so much faster than I did. I think everyone knew that I was gay before I did, I, though I came out relatively young. And a lot of that was because of the way that I spoke. And I was sick of the fact that other people knew more about me just because of this thing that supposedly I had control over. And so I, I wanted to ask originally this question of like, does the way that I choose to speak matter in literature? Hello, and welcome back to Tomato Tomorrow. I am your host, Talia Sherman, as always. And today is one of the most thrilling days that I've had in a long time, because today is the day that you get to hear the following conversation between myself and Joseph Rager. Joseph and I met this summer at the Middlebury Language Schools, where I was a student and he was a tutor in the Spanish school. And while I would like to say that we hit it off immediately, as, as you know, people say, the truth is, is that we hit it off when he told me that he was reading, all at the same time, in one week, some Dostoevsky, some Nabokov, and some Oscar Wilde. And I was like, oh my god, really? What? Tell me more! And, and, then, and then we became friends. But speaking of books, we talk a lot about literature in the following episode. And when we're not talking about literature, we're going to be talking about poetry. We're going to be talking about the political implications of language, literary theory, linguistic theory, so many huge questions that I hope will spark curiosity in you because they certainly leave me spinning and unable to sleep at night. But anyway, I really do want to let this episode speak for itself because it is so fun, so hilarious, so nerdy. But before we begin, a note about transitions for this episode. Rather than transition music, I have chosen to include a reading of the poetry that Joseph is going to be talking about throughout a lot of the episode. So you're going to get to hear the voice of author Nicolas Guillen reading aloud his own poetry as a transition noise, which is very exciting. But with that, I encourage you all to laugh along with Joseph and I, learn along with us, and enjoy this absolute rager of an episode with my brilliant friend, Joseph Rager. Joseph Rager, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is very exciting. Why is this so exciting? You can hear this in my prosody. Obviously, it's coming across. Why is it exciting? Number one, the, this is the first episode with not a professor, but a PhD student. Who are you? You're a PhD student. Tell me Tell me more. I'm a, I'm a first-year PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley. I study comparative literature. I have a linguistic lens that I look at literature with. I did linguistics and romance languages and literatures in undergrad at Harvard University. I took two years off and I just started my program this August. And so I've been at it for six weeks, which is so exciting. And yeah, there aren't a lot of people who do linguistic-y things within literature. And so I was super, super excited to hop on and talk a little bit about what I do and why I like linguistics. Yeah. So it's it's so good to be here with you. As you said, yeah, you're at Berkeley, you study comp lit, you did a double major at Harvard in linguistics and uh, romance languages and literatures. And I guess my first question with that is, why aren't you in the linguistics department at Berkeley, Joseph? <laughs> um, but I'll ask a nicer. Why did you choose, why did you elect to do comp lit versus ling? But what do you really feel like you're going to bring to comp lit with this background in linguistics? Huge question. I would say I'm in comparative literature because of a series of happy accidents, I suppose. I was interested in linguistics actually in high school. I had found out about it from a teacher that I had 
she, basically she was new to the school and she knew French and there was overflow Latin and I had already done five years of Latin and I was I was graduating that year uh, and I wanted to learn French and so every week we would meet and we would do like this little exchange where I would ask her questions about French and she would ask me questions about Latin and her explanations as to like why things worked the way that they worked and how to study and how to think about language were just so on the nose. I was like, why doesn't everybody teach this way? And she was like, oh, well, it's because you already know Spanish and Latin. And, and I was like, no, 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 this is something that you're doing. And she was like, well, I, I did linguistics at Dartmouth when I was an undergrad. And I was like, what is linguistics? And so I got to Harvard and she had advised me, take one class in linguistics, but don't do it as a major because you can't get a job after. And so my first year, I wanted to be pre-med and ended up being a nightmare, but happy to talk about that again later. And you know some of the story. But sophomore year, I took a linguistics class and I was enthralled. And so I was just looking for ways to take more classes. And I ended up doing this double major and ended up dropping the pre-med and really wanted to get better at Spanish. And so I had started a degree in Romance Languages and Literatures and then kind of combining them. And you had to write some type of thesis that incorporated elements from both. And so I was kind of constantly looking for ways to incorporate literature and linguistics just because of program requirements. And that's kind of how I fell into this niche. Linguistics, literature. Linguistics and literature don't always go together. There's a lot of like issues now with like where it, where is linguistics at? Is it a STEM? Is it a social science? It's definitely not a humanities, but you're bringing it into humanities, which creates a lot of issues or creates a lot of, I would say, questions, conversations. How do you apply linguistics to literature? I mean, so I think some like a fundamental misconception of literature is that it's not language, that it's I mean, linguistics is very concerned with authentic speech, authentic, authentic utterances and spontaneous utterances and whether or not these responses are felicitous and all of these things. And there's this notion that literature, because it's curated, because it's edited, is that it's not those things. And in fact, it can be much more representative of the ways that we think about language because someone is being so purposeful in styling it. At, le at least that's the way that I kind of conceptualize it. Um, Let's just touch on this here too. You're naming like the fundamental sort of like linguistics theory, which is, I don't know if anyone out there where you have read Derrida's theory of linguistics and naturally. literature. Naturally, but there's like long and then there's parole, right? Or parole. And long, L-A-N-G-U-E, that's the structure of language. And then parole is like, actual linguistic utterances. Literature is neither kind of, it's like a little bit of a mix. You're not really studying long old So what are you, how are you studying that? Yeah, I mean, so right, the origins of literary analysis have to do with this kind of gray area and questions of hermeneutics. Like how do we know what we know? Why do the things that we read make us think the things that we do? And so in a way, I feel like I'm honoring the traditions of both fields because linguistics doesn't ask the brave enough questions sometimes of like, what is this intermediary self-fashioning that can happen with language? And then literature asking like, where does the origin of language fit into how we think about literature? And so that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I think the reason for that was because growing up, I, I grew up in a poor community in Massachusetts. I'm white, I'm gay. And I felt like 
everybody knew who I was so much faster than I did. I think everyone knew that I was gay before I did, though I came out relatively young. And a lot of that was because of the way that I spoke. And I was sick of the fact that other people knew more about me just because of this thing that supposedly I had control over, right? Like I have agency in deciding when to speak and how to speak and why do I speak and what ideas do I want to express? But there's so much that undergirds the way that we speak, as we know, and have heard brilliantly on this podcast many, many times. And so I, I wanted to ask originally this question of like, does the way that I choose to speak matter in literature? I, I, I think that in spontaneous utterances, there is this active self-fashioning that I do. And is this active self-fashioning also present in literature? And if it is, who does it represent? Does it represent the author? Does it represent the narrative voice? Does it represent a character? And so I focused in undergrad largely on the role of Spanglish in poetry, looking specifically at whether or not Spanglish could be a productive form of poetic creation, because there are so many people out there who for a long, long time thought Spanglish was like this broken language or this like broken psyche, even if we want to be dramatic about it, and that these people didn't know how to speak English or Spanish. And I, having grown up in spaces where both languages are spoken, though I'm not a native Spanish speaker myself, I was like, obviously, this is so meaningful and so beneficial. And maybe people do have issues expressing certain things in certain languages, but that's not re that's not reflective of language, it's reflective of culture, right? So the ability to describe a food in one language versus another isn't that English lacks words for beans or for root vegetables. It's that it indexes such a, a richer idea in, in one language versus the other. Canto para matar una culebra. Mayombe, bombe, mayombe. Okay, so let's go there. So yes, your thesis, which is so brilliant, beautifully written, uh, like a journey. It is a story. I, I, I mean, I'm like fortunate enough to know some Spanish and be able to like understand the poetry that you're talking about. But wow, are you an analyzing it in just amazing ways? I'm. It's it's awesome. So your thesis is titled "Continentally Abrazándose: Code Switching, Identity Creation, and the Rise of Spanglish." And oh my god, I don't even know where to start with this. Perhaps the dramatic title, which the rise of Spanglish, super debatable. What, what does it mean for Spanglish to rise or to emerge as like some type of codified language, if we could call it that? I mean, it's it's not one language. The, the theory that I kind of subscribe to about like Spanglish as a as a way of communicating is that Inside of our brains, there is one folder that is language. And then we used to think that there were subfolders for Spanish and English. And it seems like that's probably not the case. There are just all of these ideas that kind of float around in our head that really are, are based on who we're communicating with. And does this person know what this term means? And can I use it with them? And so it's really this choice of kind of self-representing in these social spaces and whether or not I can use this language and be understood, or if I use this language, will I not be understood? And so like the rise of Spanish was very dramatic of me in my undergraduate time. But then continentally abrazándose is a quote from Tato Laviera, who is a Puerto Rican born poet, kind of grew up in New York spaces. And it's it's from a, a poem that I really like of his that actively uses both languages within lines, across lines, or I suppose verses in this instance. And and I thought it was like this really nice bridge, you no? Know? Like we get this juxtaposition of English next to Spanish. And then 
also this notion of like hugging across continents um, and thinking also about Spanish as a colonizer language and its role in Latin America. I thought it was a nice little way of encapsulating Abrazar, hugging, 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 hug. hugging each other. Right. So it's it's reflexive. And I think that re- reflexivity is important. And that reflexivity would not be represented as easily in English. Right. Which is one, one of the motivations for switching to Spanish is, is that it's faster to capture that sensation because of like the grammatical structure of the language. I mean, to walk walk you through my thesis is it started with this question of like, can code switching be purposeful? If it's purposeful, what ideas does it express? And, and I was also really interested in whether or not code switching, so switching from Spanish to English and back could be productive for a monolingual as well, right? So like theoretically, if we publish poetry, we want it to be read. We want it to be consumed. We want it to have an impact on people. And I thought if we're publishing something in two languages, we're, we're missing out on a potential audience, right? We're kind of alienating English speakers who don't speak Spanish and Spanish speakers who don't speak English. And perhaps there's a world where this is because this is a very specific experience and Tato Laviera only wanted it to be for that group of people. And while that might be true, I wanted to see whether or not this poetry could be meaningful for someone who's monolingual. And so kind of the way that I approached that question is I started with poetry by Nicolas Guillén, who is a Cuban poet writing during the Afro-Cubanism movement from like the 1930s through like the 60s and 70s. And he doesn't code switch across languages, but he does use very African-inspired language in his poetry. And it even goes so far as to use like nonsense language and kind of African sounding sounds. And what does it mean to sound African is like another huge question. But I essentially was looking at his poetry and saw how these sounds structured the poem and provided the backbone within which he could use Spanish and use that kind of justification of like, this is nonsense language that allows the poem to work and the poem could not work without it. And so how can we think of like Spanglish as like potential nonsense for one audience, but like very productive nonsense for another. And that productive nonsense for the the bilingual is one interpretation. But there's also this idea of productive nonsensical words for a monolingual as well. And so that's kind of how I approached the poetic analysis that I did in the poetry. And obviously this calls into question lots of ideas of linguistics, but also kind of notions of literature, right? Can literature be understood? Right? This poem, I was looking at it maybe 90 years after it was, no, more than after it was published, right? Like, could I have any access to what was actually kind of being indexed by that poem? La culebra tiene los ojos de vidrio. La culebra viene y se enreda en un palo. Con sus ojos de vidrio en un palo. Con sus ojos de vidrio. I'm going to get to this this claim that you make and i thought this was this was really interesting so you claim that successful monolingual interpretation of this poetry that's written from a bilingual's perspective requires the aestheticization of sound okay well you have to define okay what is the, what is the aestheticization of sound how does that look like what's that process but also what's going on here politically to aestheticize sound and how are we all aestheticizing sound every single day because i know we always are but explain a little more like first off why is that is that true and why is it that a, that a monolingual interpretation of this poetry must aestheticize sound but also what's going on there politically totally i mean a huge question right and so i don't even know where to start but the first thing is like the aesthetics of sound is that 
the way that we speak is constantly representing us in some way or another, whether that's a conscious representation or an unconscious representation, right? Listeners probably have noticed that I have a little bit of vocal fry sometimes. If you ask the acousmatic question of like, who is speaking? Like they'd probably say like, that's a white gay man. And so that's that's kind of the aesthetics of sound, right? And there's people who are looking into this all the time. Nicole Holiday, who was on the podcast just before, was looking at what, it, what does it mean to sound black, right? So this is the aestheticization of sound, is this notion of like there is some type of specific group that we can refer to or the specific trait or the specific feature that the way that we talk represents. And sometimes that can even be divorced of meaning, right? So like, Oftentimes people will hear people speak and think to myself, oh, that's Chinese or that's Spanish or that's whatever it might be. And so the aestheticization of sound in poetry for me is purposefully asking this question of like, how am I going to get my reader to think about this group? Which is kind of what I think Yen does with this like African-like language, you know, this like simplified structure. Um, and some of the ways that kind of racist talked about in the poem is through this like nonsensical language. It uses kind of like these Yoruba-like sounds. It also uses dialect. And so representing orthogra orthographically the ways that these Black communities would speak. So if you look at the page, it looks like things are spelt wrong. And so that's indexing poverty. It's indexing illiteracy, all of these things. And so there's a way by which he embraces certain linguistic traits of the Black community and then have like this hands down successful poem that is largely successful because of these like Black traits that he's able to pull out in his poetry. In poetry, I think a lot of people ask like, what are the stakes of poetry, right? This is a very privileged thing to be able to sit down and to write a poem and then send it off into the world. And while that's true, I mean, people who have huge problems in their lives also find great safety in poetry or find identity and community within poetry. And so to find poems that can actively represent this kind of bridging divide between cultures is something that can be really important for people. But it's also a way to expose people to their own prejudices when they encounter multilingualism. I, I mean, we've seen SNL skits about like Spanglish. We've seen horrible politically, I mean, even in political discourse from like 2016 and beyond, and certainly earlier as well. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about political debates in which some candidates have this like one-off sentence about like caring about the Latino community in Spanish. I mean, the, the Latino vote is a huge voting block. Whether it's actually a block, I don't think so, right? Because that's also glossing over huge differences in community within countries, across countries. And the thing that seemingly unifies us is Spanish. And I, I use us here. I'm, I'm not Latino. I want to make that clear. But there are huge regional differences, linguistic differences across these communities, even within communities, as we know. And so to have some type of monolingual speaker encounter this poetry and then walk away having learned something from this poetry could force somebody to confront these biases that they have about the legitimacy of code switching or the legitimacy of Spanglish. And so my hope in part of my hope in writing this thesis was that like somebody out there might read it one day, not knowing Spanish and then feel like they still got something out of this poetry or that perhaps this poetry was more productive because they couldn't understand parts of it. Certainly an ambitious goal. I don't know if I did that. 
but I, I know that that's the possibility. I know it's possible to have an encounter or, or, or to be to experience trans languaging and recognize that that was like a super meaningful interaction that I didn't have access to. And this notion that's very recent of like the superior monolingual is perhaps false. I mean, to give some context, I think it's something like one in five or one in six Americans speak Spanish. That might be because you grew up speaking Spanish. It might be because you're an immigrant. It might be because you learned it in school. But a lot of people are having conversations in Spanish, right? And I think something that's also startling that Nicole Holiday talked about on the last episode is that the she used a different statistic than I had heard. But I've heard that something to the effect of 95% of conversations that take place in English happen where one of the interlocutors does not speak English natively. And so the majority of interactions across the globe, both today and historically, have been along these like linguistic continuums of like, I don't really speak that way, but I'm going to still speak with you in some other way. And, and it's really with the rise of modernity that we see, for political reasons, this consolidation of state, and it's much easier to govern a body that understands you. And so there was a consolidation of language as well. Well, we got to we got to address that there. So that goes to uh, someone else's podcast talked about this as well. Colonizers, if you're colonizing a place, if, if you're in a, any kind of position of power with some group that doesn't speak the language that you speak, what is it in your advantage to do to learn their language? Certainly. And we've seen that, I mean, across the board, we've seen instances where that's the opposite as well. I mean, even within Spain itself, I mean, the kingdom of Al-Andalus arrived. Many people did not. Many people did not learn Arabic because there was like large religious tolerance. There was also large economic tolerance. And I mean, I don't mean to paint like these huge generalizations. Generally, it is the case that there are linguistic pressures, but those start happening in modernity. So I'm thinking like the year like 1500. And I, I couldn't tell you why that happens. I mean, I'm sure somebody out there could, but it is really interesting to think about the political pressures of what it means to speak a language. I mean, there's, it's been floating around Twitter for the last couple of years, but what's something super tacky if you're poor, but really posh if you're rich? And speaking a second language is like the most popular comment on every single post. And it's so true, right? Which perhaps brings us to a quote from my thesis that you sent me in preparation for this, this conversation, which was so, I was so flattered to see that you read my thesis to such kind attention to detail. Yes, the quote, which was, in this poem, there's this unnamed Cuban man who is, quote, obligated to be more cultured than the Western man and simultaneously at the whim of the Western man's taste and preference. Yeah, I mean, so the poem talks about how there are these three European men who come to Cuba and ask their tour guide, essentially, do you know about Victor Hugo? Do you know about his nephew? Do you know about all of these very, very niche, culturally specific things? And the Cuban man demonstrates, like, actually, in fact, great knowledge of these topics. So he knows who Victor Hugo is, but he doesn't know the name of his, quote, favorite grandson, I think it is. And he, uh, there's another line about knowing the word shell, but not knowing that he needs to spell it with two L's instead of one. And then the poem goes on to describe how the European man doesn't know all of these other pieces of knowledge that he has access to, but these pieces of knowledge are much more global. So it's a, a place in Argentina and all of these other things that represent the Cuban man as being like worldly as opposed to grounded just in like Cuban knowledge or culture. And again, there's this like hierarchical misconception of like Western languages as superior, Western culture as superior, and Latin American culture having to accommodate that. And I mean, that goes back to colonization, I think. We talked about a lot in the thesis as well. 
I think there was one part, I, I didn't even write down a quote from it, but it's like, there's this sense that it's like all of Latin America and then like the physical distance between between Latin America and Spain, thinking about influence of that one small country that had on this entire other place on all these other languages that have grown from that language that are still somehow considered the same language. And, but I think that that goes back to your title and continentally abrazándose, where it's like, we're hugging intercontinentally. And then also what you said at one point, how does Spanglish work? Well, quote, it fills a continental gap in identity for those who view themselves as neither fully Hispanic nor fully American. I think you can extend that too, to different dialects, languages that all stem from Spanish. Certainly. I mean, this, this can be extended to any person who doesn't speak a prestige dialect, right? Or doesn't have the ability to code switch or chooses not to code switch, right? I mean, it's in some instances, it is a choice to not speak how people expect you to speak. And that's very admirable. And I mean, we we see this kind of like popular cultural notion of like Latin America being one continuous culture in political debates all the time, right? SNL skits that talk about the Mexican immigrant. And in fact, these immigrants are the, I, I'm pretty sure that the majority of Hispanic immigrants today are not coming from Mexico, but there is still this idea that they're Mexican immigrants, right? And so like, what does it mean for one person to represent a whole group and a whole group that they don't even necessarily relate to or self-identify as? The majority of people who immigrate to the U.S. from some type of Latin American country, uh, whether it's Spanish speaking or not, does not identify as Latin American. They identify as coming from Brazil or Paraguay or Uruguay or some other country or even some type of region. Right. There's so many huge regional differences within these countries. And because of the geopolitical system that we operate under, you do have to kind of gloss over some aspects of your identity, which we do all the time, right? I'm not from Massachusetts. I'm from a tiny little town in Massachusetts. But for ease of representation and so that I'm much more legible to the audience, I'm going to say that I'm from Massachusetts. And so there's kind of this push and pull of like, where am I from and how does my language represent that? La culebra camina sin patas. La culebra se esconde en la hierba, caminando se esconde en la hierba, caminando sin pata. What are you going to be studying for your PhD? Huge question. I mean, so I'm really interested in language contact and translanguaging and identity representation in multilingual spaces, right? So gender identity, sexual identity, political identity. And so I would love to look at kind of the Caribbean in the 20th century and the early 20th century, Spanish-American War. There's a lot of kind of questions of ownership. Cuba belongs to the U.S. for a little bit and then it belongs to Spain or it belongs to Spain, it belongs to the U.S. and then it's independent. Puerto Rico is obtained by the U.S. as a territory. Lots of independence movements as well. In the mid 20th century, we get the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there's a, a huge influence of Russian in Cuba as well. And so how does all of this contact manifest, right? And what's happening? Because you can't tell me that two people didn't speak different languages and then have to interact. And so how did that interaction take place? What did it mean? What were the misunderstandings that happened? And were those misunderstandings productive at times, right? Did it make people realize, ah, my worldview is so narrow? Or maybe it was unproductive misunderstandings. Maybe, maybe it left people worse off as a result. These questions, for me, feel really relevant because the 20th century was not long ago. I mean, there are people around who remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, or there was a massacre in 1937 in the Dominican Republic where 
kind of to put it briefly, the Dominican government was going around border towns asking people to pronounce the word Berejil. And if you pronounce it in like this Haitianized way, you were killed. However, many of these communities were ethnically Haitian, but had been living in the Dominican Republic potentially for generations, but just belonged to this community that had retained Haitian Creole as their primary language. And so this is an example of, of genocide, essentially, a long linguistic, a linguistic boundary. Um, and so these, these, I mean, they have really silly consequences of like being misunderstood or not catching a joke, but it has really, really grave consequences about whether or not people get to live. Tú le das con el hacha y se muere. Dale ya. No le des con el pie que te muerde. No le des con el pie que se va. Well, okay. You're going to be in this PhD program for five years? So the normative timeline is seven years, but I'm hoping to do it in six. So most people do it in seven. And you like, you're going to just, you're just doing it in six because you're, because you're just regular or like what's the... I mean, it's ambitious, certainly, but in comparative literature, we're required to know four languages. Oftentimes, people don't have working knowledge of four languages when they come in. And so we'll spend a year abroad learning a language um, because I have a pretty clear idea of what I want to study, the languages that I want to work in, and then already like a working proficiency in English, Latin, Spanish, French, and like could probably do some work in Russian. Um, I won't be delayed by that requirement. And so hopefully could do it in six. But again, PhD is a long time. If you're not willing to put in seven years, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Maybe that's a bold statement. I don't mean to deter anybody from a PhD. If you're listening to this and you want to do a PhD, do a PhD. Well, LOL, me. Um, <laughs> I will say you were probably the most influential person that like changed the way that I thought about maybe doing a PhD or not. Because until I met you and we started talking and stuff, I was free law, quote unquote. That was my thing. I was going to go to law school. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a litigator. And I remember specifically that we were sitting and I was talking to another, our great friend Landon, who's another PhD student. At Berkeley. He's here. At Berkeley. Landon, shout out. And we were like chatting about Lolita or something and I'm quoting a passage and you just turn to me and you go, and by the way, you need to get your PhD. <laughs> and I just like, no one ever said that to me. People had said like, Maybe you want to do a PhD. Like the lay person had said that to me. Every professor I'd ever talked to had said, don't you dare do that. Don't you ever dare ever go into academia. Leave, run, spare yourself. Um, but then here you are saying, and you need to get your PhD. So then uh, now, now I want a PhD. I mean, it's a brutal place. It's solitary work. The money is not great. <laughs> there are very few jobs at the other end of these seven long years. Torture. It is hell. You will die. There's like that meme. It's like, you will be cold all the time. Like, but, it, <laughs> but it's the one thing that I would do. Right. I mean, there are lots of ways to be happy in life. And this is, this is one of them. And if you're in a position where you can mitigate the other consequences of not making a ton of money or having to work in solitude or potentially moving around because you get temporary job positions where you work for two years and then you have to move for some another two years, then this is the life for you. I mean, you get to spend every single day of your life tied to your work and it's something that you love to do. I mean, I, I am so lucky that I get paid $40,000 a year to sit and read. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. This is the thing though. It's like, what else would you be doing if you weren't reading? Probably be miserable. You would you would be crying. You would be you would be convulsing. Realistically, if I wasn't doing this PhD program, I would have gone into consulting and I would have been working 60 hours a week and probably not really enjoyed my work 
had ethical questions about whether or not I was doing environmental impact, having negative consequences on lived experiences. And I certainly do have questions about whether or not a PhD is productive for the world and whether this knowledge has meaning or might have presence later on. But at least I'm not doing active harm and I enjoy my day to day. Sense Maya la culebra. Sense Maya. Sense Maya con sus ojos. Sense Maya. So for me, the way that I see linguistics influencing literature a lot of the time is that I'll be reading a book and I will, rather than have the analyses that I had years ago before I, or really like a year and a half ago before I was doing linguistics, I'll start looking at syntax and I'll look, or I'll look at semantics or I'll look at like, huh, today in, today in my English class, for example, we're reading a quote from Persuasion and uh, the meaning of an article like A changes the syntactic instruction, whether it is not merely a selfish act or not a merely selfish act. There's a difference, right? Huge. Last night, me in the stacks, picking up two copies of the brothers Karamazov. Is that mm-hmm, the brothers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some, I was looking at some random sentence and one of them, it was like ecstatically and the other one was like rapturously or something like that. Or like, Huge differences. Huge, like revolutions. Who, what, when, where, not? Like there is a difference. So how... Can you give us some examples? How do you see linguistics influencing the way you're analyzing or reading literature? I mean, beyond what I do, I mean, digital humanities is more and more in vogue every day. And so some work that I've seen where linguists get into literature is doing some type of corpus analysis of like plugging in a novel and seeing, doing syntax trees of every sentence and seeing what kind of similarities there are across works. Um, Someone that I know who's actually at Harvard doing his PhD, he's looking at, psychoanalytic theory in Germany and looking at how the way people talk about it change over time as psychoanalysis develops as a field. The way that I see linguistics is much more phonetic phonology kind of oriented. Um, The work that I've done has been largely in poetry and thinking about how we represent sound because sound were, the, the lay person is really quick to understand or quick to accept that People talk differently, and the most obvious manifestation of that is an accent or dialect or uh, vowel sounds, for example. And so that's kind of the easiest way in. I think what you're touching on in terms of translation is also something that I'm really interested in. And <laughs> huge questions of how, how do we translate? What is the goal of translation? And I think linguistics gives us really important frameworks for how to think about translation, right? Because there are impacts, as you're saying, about these like syntactic structures and semantic structures as well, right? Like what does this word mean and what are its potential double meanings versus in English, does this word have the same double meaning? I mean, there's there's so many things that we call upon when we speak and so many things that we reference and it's impossible to translate all of those in a one-to-one correlation across languages. And so Linguistics allows you to be aware of a lot more of that nuance than you might otherwise be. And so you, the fact that you're aware of this nuance means that you can discard it as you would before, at least justifying it, or perhaps work with it. And so that's how I kind of imagine linguistics fitting into my work, is it just allows me this level of awareness that I think is sometimes taken for granted in a lot of literary analysis. Sense Maya con su lengua. Sense Maya. I, I want to ask, we know that language is a is a structured system of signs, a structured system. 
is literature this structured system? Literature is so structured. It's so structured. <laughs> Thank you. Why? And not just structured as in like structuralism, the literary theory. As we know, you and I are both into, into literary theory. We read it on the sly. But beyond just theories of structuralism and formalism, there is a structure. How is it structured? I mean, I think we have to start with 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 literary theories of structure. People care about form, right? I want to open a novel and I want it to end somewhere specific, right? I don't necessarily know where, but you you leave any engagement with literature satisfied or dissatisfied. And that's largely due to structure, right? So do we have the right number of, of character arcs? Are they resolved? If they're not resolved, is it in a way that's acceptable? Is there continuity within literature? If there's not continuity, is it purposeful or is it is it just accidental? Sometimes people talk about literature being contrived, right? This notion of like the author is sloppy and just like sets up all of these scenarios so that we can see them unfold, but we can feel the presence of the author. And, and sometimes that's purpose, purposeful and sometimes that's accidental. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, it's very cliche, but Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. I don't know if he's really dead or if she's really dead or if they're really dead because everybody does want to feel like their reading experience is meaningful. And where does that meaning come from? It's from structure or, or form in some way. The idea that this is here purposefully or not purposefully. And so I would I would say that literature does have structure everywhere and then to break that structure is often what gives us this experience of satisfaction or discontent and then structure also exists in the form of intertextuality right so there's uh what does it mean for a genre to exist right so i'm thinking of the sonnet for example i mean it has like a a, a rhyme scheme that's kind of very established and so to be a sonnet you have to follow this rhyme scheme but there's also motifs that you have to reference or uh, common tropes, archetypes in, in characters, for example, as well. And so there's also structure across a single piece that allows for work to be familiar. And then that familiarity can then be called into a, into question through some type of authorial intervention or some type of dramatic uh, moment in the piece. Yeah. And then you think about like the web kind of too, of like you have like a genre, but then you have genres that defy time and defy time period. Uh, I am in a course right now called Love Stories. That necessitates a question of like, what is a love story? Because there is structure to that too. Yeah, I don't know. Everyone should just go read. Everyone should read literary theory. I don't know what, who, why that's not, not popular anymore. It used to be the thing in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's hard to get into it. I mean, it, it's a huge sea that people swim in every day and a lot of people drown. And in this case, drowning is leaving academia. <laughs> Which sucks anyway, so, like, why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're better off not in academia. And uh, it's it's true. I do think that more people should read. But reading is intimidating because all of these structures exist. And I think one of the challenges is that people feel lost within these structures because they don't, they know that it's out there, but they don't know how to interact with it. And they don't know what the limitations are. And they don't know, it feels like unfamiliar territory. But literature also points out structures that we have in our world that sometimes fall into the background, right? And so people are obsessed with this idea of like, how do we know our own mind if our mind is constantly mediated by language? But I think with literature, it's a trickier question. Like, you know, how do we conceptualize a metaphor? How do we understand? How do we take any semantic meaning out of things that literally don't make sense? Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. I am totally on Chomsky's side of things when he says like that does not have semantic meaning, but yet 
there is there's a poetic application. There's a poetic reading. There's a metaphorical reading of that in which I could say, uh, actually, you know, substanceless, wafy, new ideas are restless, right? And maybe that does have have semantic meaning. Makes a little bit of sense to me. <laughs> exactly. I would say maybe I'm a little bit of a colorless screen idea, sleeping furiously all the time. Uh, one of my favorite, oh, favorite like examples, I immolated myself. This is a line from Lolita. He says, I immolated myself. What does he do? He's not, he, he doesn't immolate it. There cannot, it cannot be. He's in a hotel room. He's not letting himself up. What is he doing? I mean, going back to immolated, there are a lot of people who would pick up a book and not know what immolated means, right? And so that's one barrier is just sometimes literature can be exclusive because we're referencing things that aren't common knowledge necessarily. And so giving people the, the structures, <laughs> speaking of structure, to be able to consume literature is something that I think we need to do more of. And I know high school English class exists, but I remember being in high school English class and asking myself, why are we here? This feels so rah-rah and almost disconnected from the real world. But in fact, that distance from the real world is what allows us to see the real world in such clearer focus because it we're not prepared to defend our position. We're not prepared to defend our reality in literature. And so when we see something that we're uh, unhappy with, it, it sparks our attention and we're able to respond to it better. Yeah. What's the book for you that, that changed your mind? There's, there's a series of books, I would say. The first one that comes to mind is, I will say, kind of a rah-rah book, uh, Pale Fire by Nabokov. And, uh, not to spoil it for anybody, but it starts out with this foreword seemingly written by somebody. It's it's part of the book, and it talks about how this poem was written by this guy who died, and what follows is the, re, the reprinting of his poem with some commentary at the end. And it's like 20 pages of poetry, and then we get 200 or so pages of some type of poetic analysis done by this supposed author. And it's total appropriation of... Uh, his dead friend's text. Um, and I think that's especially pertinent, pertinent today in terms of cultural appropriation, literary appropriation. But I also think that speaking of form, this, this is something that totally pushes form to its limits. And so 200 pages of literary commentary is tough to get through for a seemingly fake work. Some of it works, most of it doesn't. And that's the point. But that was the first book where I was like, oh, I do need to get a PhD in literature because this is just so good. The book that got me into reading as an adult, I would say, is um, Pride and Prejudice. I, I read it with a book club and I remember people would read it in high school and say that it was amazing. And people would read it in college and say that it was, it was their favorite book. And it may be one of my favorite books. But if you want to look at excellence in form, Pride and Prejudice is the mold. It does it. And then uh, right after high school, I was gifted a copy of The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. And it's a dense book. It's a thousand over a thousand pages. And it's about the building of a cathedral over the course of many lifetimes. And really made me think about what did I want my impact to be? What did I want my presence to be after I'm gone? And hopefully it's it's related to language and literature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wait, I can't say that. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I'm like, I'm still sort of in this place where like, can I swear? Am I allowed? There's no rules. Like no one's in charge of me. I mean, that's a specific choice that you're making to represent yourself, right? Right. Though, I mean, about that, I 
I swear a lot, like in my everyday life, anyone who knows me knows this. And it's not necessarily a conscious thing, but I do know that like, I am under no, I'm in no hurry to stop that because I know that I'm data because women swear mm-hmm. up men and women are punished much more gravely for swearing. Like it just in everyday life, it's just seen as like much more unbecoming on a woman than it is on a man. Mm-hmm. Um, So I, mm-hmm. I, I am very aware that like be swearing a lot as, as a woman, it like matters because it does matter it does matter i mean also within a context of a podcast right i mean a, not to push literature to ex- its extreme but a podcast could be a literary object and so once we go back and we look at the polished version of this i'm curious to know whether or not we leave in the expletive that you said or we cut it out and if we leave it in now we're going to be including all of this meta commentary about whether or not it should have been in or out and now we're talking about form explicitly within the context of some some literary object and it just goes to show you that these questions demonstrate the form and structure that exists and and that it's inherently linguistic right what is this form going to represent about who I am, how I speak, and how I want to be represented. Yeah. And then you have to deconstruct the form and the meaning and everything. And you get to deconstruction. And there is no inherent meaning. And you have to deconstruct the text. The deconstruction totally. of the text, deconstruction of language. I mean, oh, that's something else that I wanted, I guess I want to touch on is too. It's like when you're doing deconstruction of the text of deconstruction of literature, very often it's about deconstructing meaning and like looking at how each word has has no inherent meaning unless it's in relation to another. But what a lot of times I feel like I end up doing now that I do linguistics is what makes up literature? What are the parts of it, right? You're deconstructing the literature to like find the underlying structure of it. So I just, I think that like that is kind of interesting. And I know that there's huge debate and I have had many professors say, basically in all certain terms, who the fuck cares about literature? Like it's not real. I will say that there are, I don't, I can't remember the name of it, but there is a very intelligent woman who wrote a book about the linguistics of free and direct discourse in the novel and whether or not this could be a potentially felicitous form of speech. Because oftentimes if we think about the narrative voice in free and direct discourse, it does not seem representative of the way that we talk at all. It's hard to imagine a situation where we might be narrating in a and then Talia entered and thought to herself, no, 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 no. But this happens all the time in jokes, doesn't it? And so there is a world where this like literary voice does manifest in a way that we do use in kind of extreme circumstances. And I mean, obviously, linguistics is moving into this direction with, with neurolinguistics and computational linguistics. But how does linguistics comprehend humor? How does it comprehend the the hilarious or the irrational i mean we're getting better at it certainly but literature is already there we know what we know how to handle the 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 absurd i i think i think i think that's ultimately the reason why i wanted to do literature is because it felt much more willing to accept a multifaceted approach to analysis where a lot of times the linguistics work that I've seen coming from PhD students is kind of this like intense isolation of this one trait or this one feature. And I was much more interested in that bigger picture. And so if you want to look at that bigger picture, please join us in comparative literature or or, or do more literature work in your own linguistics research or your own linguistic thinking, because literature is a really, 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 really rich source of linguistic information. And something, for example, that I think could be productive is because I'm talking about literature, I've, I've been gesturing at least to the idea of literature as an authentic source of language. And for those of us who think 
for those of them who think that it might not be an authentic source of literature, well, how is it not authentic, right? Looking at where it deviates from authentic speech or authentic production could also be really interesting because say there is this like really, really clear point at which they diverge. Well, what does that say then about literature? And what does that say about our inability to speak that way? La culebra muerta no puede comer. La culebra muerta no puede silbar, no puede caminar, no puede correr. My last question for you is really, for those people who are not in academia, for those people who are absolutely not going to go into academia, for those people who think that is a crazy place to be, filled with cold, brutal, miserable people, why should you care at all about linguistics or literature specifically? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that literature is fun. Maybe you just haven't found the right piece of literature yet. And so give it a try. Every New Year's, <laughs> make a resolution to read five pages a day and then give it up after a month. And then maybe one year, you'll be two months in and then you'll give it up and you'll be better off for it. The second thing that I want to say is just taking care of your mental health, your brain. Your brain functions off of language and linguistics gives you better tools to work with language, to learn language, whether that's your the, a language you already speak and getting better at it, or it's a language that you want to learn. This is a way of doing it efficiently, scientifically, which maybe language should, should be an art form, but there is a way to approach it that allows you to have just a whole different relationship to the way that you speak and the way that you think. And everyone wants to know who they are at the end of the day, which is maybe a silly thing to say, but... No, not at all. It's fun to bounce it back and forth between a scientific interpretation of language and an artistic one. And there's a lot of productivity in that. And so I would encourage everybody to, if you're a literature person, think more scientifically. And if you're a scientific person, to think more literarily in your daily life. Thank you so much for listening to Tomato Tomato. I have been your host, Talia Sherman. And that was my conversation with PhD student Joseph Rager at the University of California, Berkeley. If you'd like to read any of the poetry, books, or articles mentioned throughout the episode, check out the episode description. That's what it's always for. And don't forget to rate this podcast on Spotify. Give it a little review at Apple Podcasts. And if you like the episode, let people know and pass along the podcast so that others may enjoy this work as well. And with that, I will speak to you all next time. Bye.